Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. This is our third special episode that is dealing with our recent conference, California in Crisis COVID-19. We are using each panel discussion and presentation as its own podcast. So today we are looking at panel three, which looks at telehealth. Telehealth was rarely used in California before the pandemic. Now patients have virtual visits with healthcare providers through phone or video chat, remote patient monitoring, and online support for managing chronic conditions. We look at the advantages and drawbacks of this new treatment technology. Uh, We are lucky to have some very outstanding panelists who are well-versed in telehealth, including Dr. Richard Florio of Kaiser Permanente, David Ford of the California Medical Association, Todd May of HealthNet, Dr. Javid Siddiqui of Telemed2U, and David Stockwell, Veterans Affairs, NorCal Healthcare System. Our moderator is Sammy Keola of Capital Public Radio. Sammy took a break from uh, doing their fundraising pledge drive to come over and uh, moderate this panel for us. So if you really enjoy this, uh, you can always donate to Capital Weekly, but don't forget you can also donate to Capital Public Radio. They are an outstanding resource if you want to keep yourself informed. Uh, Speaking of donations, I would be remiss if I did not mention our sponsors who made this possible. Uh, Kaiser Permanente, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, the California Professional Firefighters, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, and Pandora. We could not do these events without them, and we really appreciate their support. So with that, I'm going to turn you over to Sammy Keola. I hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. Well, thanks, Tim, for the endorsement and for the plug for Cap Radio. And big thanks to our audience for tuning in today. As a health reporter, telemedicine, telehealth is something that always came up as this emerging trend. And it seems that now the pandemic has opened the floodgates on what's possible in this field. So we have an excellent panel of experts to talk about that. Uh, Dr. Javed Siddiqui is the founder and chief medical officer for Telemed2U. It's a company that helps patients, health plans, and healthcare providers find telemedicine solutions. Hi, Dr. Siddiqui. Good afternoon. David Ford is vice president of health information technology for the California Medical Association. Hi, Mr. Ford. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Dr. Todd May is Senior Medical Director at Insurance Provider HealthNet. Thank you, Dr. May. Good afternoon. Happy to be here. David Stockwell is Director of the VA Northern California Health System. Thanks, Mr. Stockwell. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Dr. Richard Florio is a vascular surgeon with Kaiser Permanente. Hello, Dr. Florio. Hi, Sammy. Thanks. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Five of you. (laughs) So I just want to start with a little a little overview of the landscape. Uh, Dr. Siddiqui, you have been working in telehealth for almost two decades. How has the field changed, and what does it look like in the last six months? Thank you. I think it's a very important question. Yes, I had the privilege of actively starting doing, doing telemedicine in 2002 at the University of California, Davis. I'm a disciple of Dr. Tom Nesbitt, who uh, really is the father of telemedicine in the state of California. You know, uh, telemedicine has always served an incredibly important role, but um, as in healthcare, 
It's very difficult to do innovative things. We're very good at developing new technologies, new MRIs, new diagnostic tests. But when it really comes to doing something innovative as far as delivering services, we tend to be significant laggards, um, uh, to use the term. So um, when with the global pandemic, with SARS coronavirus 2, uh, that we refer to as COVID-19, uh, we really had a situation where we were thrust into using telemedicine and telehealth. Uh, I'm an infectious disease physician, and one of the things I've been saying is nothing like a global pandemic to justify your life's work. So it's been amazing to see uh, the rest of the world uh, embrace telemedicine. It's been an incredible time for the field. Um, I think we have uh, really shown and proven, and, and no one hopefully is questioning whether telemedicine is a way to deliver healthcare. Um, and in some ways, I, uh, I think, that, as Tim said, it really has been one of the shining lights for uh, this global pandemic. Would anyone else like to weigh in on that question? Okay, I just, Dr. Siddiqui covered it for us. <laughs> Look, looking, looking at the pandemic, I wanna talk about some of the specific changes that happened on a federal level that gave California the flexibility to do what it sounds like was a significant amount of progress in a short amount of time. Uh, Dr. Todd May, can you give us some of the details on, on what exactly changed in the spring? Yeah, well, yeah so there have been changes both uh, at the federal level and really importantly at the state level. So CMS did uh, relax the restrictions on uh, use of telehealth for Medicare patients. So that was great, so that opened access. And they're looking at continuing that post-pandemic, which makes a lot of sense. I, I want to focus on the state, though, because a lot of activity really happened at the state. I'll tell you a little bit about our situation. Uh, I work for HealthNet, a health plan, and, you know, the pandemic hit, and we're just thinking, well, we don't provide direct services. You know, that's not our role, so what can we do? And we said, we can bring telehealth to our members. And we looked at our current landscape. We had about 600,000 commercial members who had telehealth access. Great. We had nearly 2 million Medi-Cal members who did not. So we targeted that like, okay, that we're going to stand this up. We're going to set up telehealth as quickly as possible. We contracted with a third-party telehealth vendor uh, and uh, to provide those services, and we went forward. Now, the re regulatory environment in California is very difficult, and to get things through regulatory, um, particularly for Medi-Cal, can take months and months and months. Obviously, this is unprecedented situation, unprecedented, required for unprecedented action. And we just decide we're just going to move forward. We're just going to go. And, you know, we've got, because that's what we have to do. Fortunately, the state recognized this imperative very early on and substantially reduced, uh, relaxed their requirements. And they issued what's called a file and use policy, which is we have to file all the regulatory documents. But rather than waiting for them to go through the prolonged state process, you can go ahead and go. So we, uh, we put full force behind this and we uh, went, went live with our first set of Medi-Cal patients within three weeks. And within seven weeks, we had uh, access to 2 million Medi-Cal members. Um, so it was you know, really phenomenal and very thankful for, for the state having that vision that you know, that's what we need to do right now. David Ford, did you want to weigh in at all on, on what's been going on at the state level? Um, yeah, sure. And um, a, a few things I would say. Um, hopefully everyone is aware that uh, California, as we like to be, was a little bit ahead of the curve 
Um, and there was actually legislation that CMA sponsored in uh, 2009, uh, Assembly Bill 744, that started California on a path towards payment parity for telehealth, um, especially for the commercial market. And what actually happened during the pandemic, that, that legislation is set to take effect January 1 of next year. And so the, you know, the all plan letters and the, the waivers that, that Dr. May referenced that came out at the start of the pandemic was really taking something that was already set to take effect and slid it up into this year um, instead of last year. So that was, um, that was obviously very heartening. And, you know, CMA worked with a lot of folks to help uh, bring that to bear. Um, and it, it did expand some on 744. We do have some work left to do uh, in telehealth because the um, Assembly Bill 744 really only applies to the commercial market. And um, so when we're, you know, Medi-Cal managed care, it actually doesn't apply to. Um, and I think everyone's right now sort of collectively holding their breath, waiting to see what happens in Washington and if CMS is going to continue the waivers that they put in place. Um, because, of course, a lot of folks will follow CMS. And um, then I, I did want to say one thing. I expected Dr. May to bring this up, but his company also put $13 million into the field in grant funds for providers um, to support telehealth, so credit where credit's due. And I know some others did that as well, including the California Healthcare Foundation. Um, so there was not just support, but there, was, there were hard dollars that were put in the field to help providers make that switch overnight. Hey, thank you for the shout-out. If I could just mind following up on that. You know, so I, I talked about launching a third-party telehealth uh, provider for for our members. Now, simultaneously, we know that practices are ramping up their own telehealth uh, services, and there's a lot of variation uh, at the baseline. Some uh, some organizations are very advanced with their telehealth, some not. There's a real disparity issue here. I want to point out, we you know, when we focus on our Medi-Cal population, we highlighted that health health uh, health disparity and focus on that group. Same thing happens uh, among the Medi-Cal providers in the state. They're under-resourced, definitely uh, for the most part did not have telehealth services. So we targeted that $13 million specifically to federally qualified health centers who provide services to Medi-Cal patients. Again, with a, a, an aim to um, uh, for health equity and reduce those disparities. Thank you. So what does it take to get telemedicine off the ground for um, a physician, for a clinic, a hospital. I think you probably all have something to say about that, but maybe Dr. Florio, you could start us off. Yeah, I mean, um, our situation is a, it may be a little bit different than some, but for us, I think one of the, the big things has been really the um, having the willingness to do it. Um, I've been practicing vascular surgery for over 20 years. And I can tell you, I started telehealth two decades ago. And initially, it was met with a lot of resistance. Now, it was mostly by phone back then. But um, uh, you quickly understand that the patients find great value in it. Um, they do get personal connections, even with telephone, although video is much better. Um, they love the convenience on so many levels. Um, and particularly some of the vulnerable, vulnerable populations, such as the elderly, which is what most of my patients are. Um, it, um, it, it is something that I discovered you can advance care really very far, even as 
subspecialty like mine, where you would think there's no value in it from a medical perspective, there is great value in diagnosing uh, the ability to uh, take really in-depth histories. Um, the advent of video care, which um, takes a little, took a little bit of um, uh, um, hurdle to, it was a little bit of a hurdle to overcome for some of the older members, but you find that once they do it, there is no doubt that they find great value in it. Um, seeing them and meeting them where they're at, um, you see this, this uh, really rapid increase in patient comfort and acceptance of, of using video uh, and, and telehealth in general um, to provide you know, what, what the patient values, great care. Uh, I think that surprises a lot of people, but once you cross that little threshold, you find that people are, physicians and patients are very, very willing to try to do even more with it. So uh, I think that's, that's something I, all of us can agree on. There's great value in this. Dr. Florio, just for those who may not be familiar with the concept of telehealth, mm -hmm. could you just walk me through an example of what it looks like? Uh, what does this actually do in practice? What does it mean for patients? So um, it's so for me, I'll get a consult for, say, an aortic aneurysm or something like that, based on a, a very generic study, an ultrasound that gives uh, a size estimate. Um, when you connect with them, usually in their house, with their spouse, uh, right by their side, and you um, can start doing all the his history stuff you would normally take from a patient. Um, you know, uh, review their past medical history, talk about their allergies. You can have a very in-depth risk and benefit discussion with somebody while they're relaxed and in their own environment. So you actually meet them on their terms. And I think for me as a physician, it's been very interesting. You know, a lot of times going to an office is very contrived uh, for the patient. Uh, you know, you uh, go into a sterile environment, all these people greet you, you've parked, you've walked. Well, now you're seeing them with their dog uh, right by their side, their spouse, uh, sitting in their easy chair, and there's a relaxed nature um, where you can really talk about their fears um, that you might not be able to um, uh, because you're you're trying to overcome a lot more when they come and see you. So it, I think that's why they like it a lot more. Um, I know I like it a lot more because I get to see them in their own environment. Would anyone else like to share uh, successes they've seen with patients or even snags or some of the barriers while you were trying to set up a new telehealth option? Sure, absolutely. So I think you brought up a very important question. I think that a lot of people feel that telemedicine is simply downloading software and getting started. There's a lot more to it than that. And I think that um, we've been saying for a long time that the hardest part of telemedicine really is the operational aspect of telemedicine. Right. And, and so many times people say, well, we tried telehealth and it didn't work. Well, it's because they didn't invest in the operational aspect of it. And they didn't try, you know, and from the physician standpoint, there's some training involved. So, um, you know, I, I, I actively practice telemedicine in hospitals, in clinics, and, and now seeing patients at home. 
I mean, to be able to continue to treat patients for whether it be hepatitis C, HIV, or be able to be in the hospital and seeing patients with COVID-19 who are in the ICU, the sickest of the sick patients, we're able to do all of that through telemedicine. But it's not simply all about the technology. It's not simply about the software. You have to understand that there is operational issues and there is training, and, and that is so vital. And I think now, as providers are doing it, they really understand that that's, that that's a really important component of it because if the physician or the provider isn't comfortable with the medium, right, and isn't comfortable and isn't set up and isn't doing, then they're not going to make the patient comfortable. So that's going to affect the quality of the interaction. And where can physicians find resources and support on that, particularly the Medi-Cal providers that were mentioned before that, that may already be overwhelmed? How can they make this happen? Absolutely. There's plenty of resources, right? I mean, obviously there's the uh, uh, CTRC that, uh, that's in California um, that, that has a great Sorry, CTRC? Uh, it's the Center for Telehealth, the uh, Telehealth Resource Center, and um, they've done a wonderful job. Miss um, Kathy Chorba runs the, is the executive director of it, and uh, I had the pleasure of working with Kathy at, at UC Davis, so she does a phenomenal job. Uh, obviously, there's the American Telemedicine Association, the CMA, the California Medical Association, has done some wonderful work with regards to helping with telemedicine. And I think, you know, obviously what Kaiser and Dr. Florio have done to train their internal department. And then obviously, we can't forget the VA. The VA has just done an outstanding job with telemedicine and telehealth, and uh, not only from the technical technology standpoint, uh, from training their physicians, but just increasing availability of telemedicine. I think that the VA was one of the leaders in that. So we really have to give them a tremendous amount of credit for promoting telehealth within the VA network. You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the VA, and I just wanted to add a success story. So we found that, you know, there's some trepidation with patients that their first time using a video telehealth. So one of the success strategies we've tried is actually to train them while they're still an inpatient at the hospital. So they're, they're in their hospital bed, we bring our IT team in, we have their personal device, we put the apps on there, we test it out with them. So that way we can, when they get home, they can use telehealth, it reduces readmission rates, it does better outcomes post-acute care, and so it's just been a tremendous resource for us that uh, that's been one of the areas we've seen some success. David, do you think there's anything specific about veterans that makes this a good option for them? And, and what are some of those factors? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've done about 40,000 video visits so far since January of this year with veterans across Northern California. And a couple things that are really advantageous. So there's not a VA uh, clinic on every corner in all of Northern California, but there is video capability. And so the reduction in travel time to come to the VA hospital or to a VA clinic has been great for veterans. It's improved access to rural uh, communities across Northern California as well. But, um, you know, veterans, they want healthcare, they want to have that connection. And so we've actually found that as they actually use telehealth, there's a lower no-show rate. They actually show up for their appointment more often, even though, you know, they're just reminded five minutes beforehand that they've uh, got an appointment. And so that's been great for vets as well. Some of you may have seen a story I did recently on telehealth for uh, behavioral health care and particularly for suicide prevention. And I'm wondering if any of you can speak to what telemedicine looks like in the psychiatry therapy field and if it has advantages particular to that type of medicine. 
And this is Todd May I'll from HealthNet. Why doesn't Dave, David can jump in briefly and then we'll go to Todd. Great. The, uh, what's been great, we have about 90% of all of our mental health being done via tele video telehealth right now. And uh, the uh, patient and the provider have found that uh, some of the reasons that uh, one of my colleagues mentioned they're comfortable in their own home, there's not the hassle factor of coming and going, uh, but the ability to deliver mental health uh, in that comfort area has actually had some qualitative outcomes as well. We've seen a 34% a reduction in acute psychiatric bed days of care from patients that are engaged in video telehealth and a 31% reduction in needing to get admitted to the hospital. So having easy access to care from your home is actually preventing more acute episodes of mental health. Oh, wow, those are big figures. Thank you for sharing those. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic to hear. You know, we've seen a, a dramatic increase in, in telehealth uh, utilization, right, both in the, in the providers, from the providers directly and from, from our, uh, our provider. And it's been particularly strong in behavioral health. I mean, it's really, been, it's really jumped to what, uh, like the speaker said, m the vast majority of visits in behavioral health are now telehealth visits. And you can see it's, it's kind of a natural, right? Now, unlike um, medical visits, there really isn't an examination piece of this. It's, it's talking, right? You are, and, and evaluating, you know, the examination piece is looking at the aspect, how the person looks, how they're behaving, how they're thinking, that kind of thing. That can all be done by telehealth, by, uh, by video visits. So that's a natural. And then also that convenience factor. I mean, you know, think of a, think of a patient who is severely depressed. They have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning, let alone, you know, getting themselves to an office. It really improved that access. And I'm really pleased to hear about these, also these tangible additional benefits. That's, that's really terrific. Did anybody else want to weigh in on that one? Sure, absolutely. You know, um, we're uh, behavioral health is one of our top five medical specialties that we do at Telemed to you. And as similar to everyone else, we had just a remarkable number of success stories, convenience, et cetera. The, the one thing I want to say is that, you know, telemedicine is always about increasing access to healthcare. It's always been about um, improving access. And that's something that we've really struggled with in the United States. And now with the increased use of telemedicine, we really can make a change in that. I really hope that from a legislative standpoint that we will continue to uh, continue these policies that will allow our patients to have access to telemedicine no matter where they are. It's, you know, to be able to talk to a patient about depression right in their home to be able to see their environment. As Dr. Florio said, it's amazing to see, you know, how, whether our patients have a very chaotic environment or whether they have a very stable environment. Um, I've even, you know, had to do telemedicine to uh, patients who are displaced from their homes and, and living with relatives and to be able to still get access to healthcare is incredibly important. So I really hope that uh, uh, the policies and the regulatory issues will, uh, will continue so we can continue this great work. I'd just like to add on to what you were saying. It's not only about, in, it is definitely the improvement in access, but the improvement in their care experience that, that you're all hearing. And, and I think that's one thing that is everybody on the call knows the, um, what COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic has done to the increase in, uh, in uh, mental health referrals and consultations and how powerful uh, 
telemedicine has been in responding to that. It is, it, to me, it is, this, is the, this is an area where it is absolutely shown how powerful it can be, both in experience and access in, in a time of crisis. You know, we've and had can, a long time. Can, I, oh, can I jump in on one thing? We all had to weigh in on this question. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I wasn't going to speak, but I, I do want to add a little the but here. So BH has always been, I'm sorry, behavioral health has always been one of the sort of obvious use cases of, of telehealth um, because it's, it's so much less involved in actually putting hands on the patient. Um, so it, it, it's been sort of an obvious use case. But one of the biggest learnings that I think we've had over the last six months um, as telehealth has, has kind of expanded so much um, is that one of the biggest determinants of a successful telehealth rollout versus a not successful one is the ability of the provider to express empathy in a virtual environment. And um, now I'm, I think one of the only people on this panel who's not an MD, but my understanding is there's a lot of education in medical school about how to express empathy as a patient. And a lot of it involves body language. It involves touching the patient and so then now physicians who are moving into a virtual environment and a lot of cases are having to relearn how to do that and how to express empathy with their words or in a visual, um, uh, a virtual visit, you know, the way that they sit, the way that they smile, these things that express empathy and that is essential in BH. Um, and so, you know, I appreciate Dr. Siddiqui earlier, uh, name checking CMA. You know, we are doing a lot of education for providers. Um, about telehealth and it's actually one of those specific things that we are educating physicians about is how to foster that connection even though you're in a virtual environment which may seem impersonal. And while we're on behavioral health care, I want to ask about uh, the mental health professional shortage. There's been a real lack of psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists in many parts of California. To what extent does telebehavioral health fix that? Does it, does it, does it help physician time go further? Or is that, is the, is the workforce shortage still its, its own pressing issue? Well, I, I think the workplace shortage for medical specialists is across the board. I mean, um, my field in, in infectious diseases is a tremendous shortage of infectious physicians. So I think one of the key aspects of telemedicine is that it's a workforce multiplier, right? It allows, so from a behavioral health standpoint, it allows uh, behavioral health specialists, both from a synchronous and asynchronous telemedicine standpoint, to really reach a, a greater number of patients and really be able to help those that need the help because you're eliminating um, the travel issues for them and, and, you know, the bus is running late, so I'm late to my appointment, you're eliminating that. From my field in infectious diseases, it allows us to cover many more hospitals. I, I, I help do infectious disease work at four hospitals. Um, one of them almost 300 miles from my office. So to be able to sit at my desk and be able to simply click a button and to be able to be in an ICU geographically doesn't matter, um, makes a tremendous difference and really is a workforce multiplier. That makes sense to me. Did anyone have um, anything else to add on that? Um, okay. just yeah. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, um, I, I would just say a couple of things. Um, you know, we, telehealth to me is, is necessary but not sufficient when we're talking about the mental health workforce problem. It's helpful in that part of what we, we wrestle with in California is a maldistribution of providers. Um, we have 
a lot of providers in some very well-funded, very, um, you know, suburban, large facilities. And then we have very, very rural areas that have almost no access to, to mental health care. And telehealth can be helpful in that case in connecting the providers, as Dr. Siddiqui referenced, connecting providers to patients who may be three, four hundred, you know, miles away. So in that case, it is helpful. But I do want to make sure we don't go down the road of thinking that telehealth is a silver bullet that can solve the mental health problem. We really do need to work on that pipeline and, you know, the, the medical school slots, the residency slots, graduate medical education funding, all of those things need to happen as well. Yeah, Todd really highlighted my point there. So we still have difficulty with uh, getting enough mental health professionals, but uh, I've got clinics in Wairika, Redding, Chico, very difficult to hire a psychiatrist in those locations, but I can use video telehealth for the Sacramento-based uh, professionals to still reach the patients there. So really uh, um, uh, magnifying that same point, so thanks. Any other words on that? Okay. What communities in California are being left out? Who is not accessing telehealth right now and why not? Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I've emphasized a lot our work with the Medi-Cal population. I think, I think the, uh, the poor and underserved communities have the uh, biggest barriers and biggest challenges. One, uh, they're less likely just to have access the telehealth option, period. Uh, and then even if they do, there are also other challenges. You know, do they do they have the right equipment? Do they have the bandwidth, uh, et cetera? Um, do they, language language barriers. I mean, we provide services in, in, in multiple languages, mostly with interpreters, which is also not ideal, but you know, but that's the way we need to do it. Um, so there, that's, I would say that's the population with the most challenge. And again, that's where we focused our our effort and our resources primarily, but there are there are plenty of um, plenty of uh, areas across the state that uh, are still struggling. I mean, this is this has been great. There's been a, a major boom. Uh, I I don't know that's reaching every corner of the state. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that it's highlighted is really the digital divide. Um, I think nothing is uh, nothing has highlighted that more than the, the the global pandemic and access because we realize as we sheltered in place, we really realize how important having broadband services. It's not just about oh you have internet. No, you really need broadband services because obviously video we're doing we're doing twenty four frames per second if not more right to get the HD quality video that we're doing and that takes bandwidth and. Um, so it's really about infrastructure. And, you know, as mentioned, you know, we work in Wairico, we work in frontier clinics throughout California. I think most people forget that 72% of California is designated rural. So, you know, we're in those areas working and I, and I can tell you it's a tremendous um, importance having infrastructure. However, the contrary is also true. We can't just think about telemedicine in rural areas. We have to think about the urban underserved. The urban underserved has been a huge passion of mine through telemedicine because Everyone focuses primarily on rural, and that's critically important as well. But the urban underserved, right? Um, we work in downtown Los Angeles, and it's critically important that we they have access to broadband. They have access to uh, telemedicine just like um, uh, our frontier clinics do. So the digital divide and the, the infrastructure, I think, is it's critical. Yeah, I want to highlight the, the video aspect of telehealth. 
certainly you can provide services by telephone only and and sometimes that's the only way we can so if the if the patient does not have bandwidth that you do the best you can but as we've talked about or hinted at so much is lost when you don't have the video component in both directions so uh, as a uh, you know it was 80% of our communication is nonverbal communication, right? And so as clinicians, we can really, you know, if we're not laying hands on, on the uh, patient, we can gather a lot of information about that patient's uh, state of mind, their condition, their, their breathing, uh, et, et cetera. Uh, and likewise, as, as was mentioned uh, from the VA experience, you know, that, and from Dr. Florio, you know, that, that empathy piece, right? It's like, you know, really how, how we are connecting with patients. You, you can, you know, you can do a pretty good job on the phone. It is vastly better with video. So, and that's, that contributes to that uh, digital divide is can they get to the video aspect of this? And it, certainly are there in the, it certainly aids in the personal connection and the ability to express empathy. Um, you're right. Video, video is, is, is much, much better in that regard. Are there ways to restore a sense of equity or, or bridge this digital divide? I'm thinking about, you know, schools giving Chromebooks or hotspots to students. Have there been any pilot programs to give patients the tools that they would need to access video? One of the things we're doing here at the VA is that if we have a, a, a veteran that doesn't have an iPad, for example, to be able to do a video visit, we've actually nationally distributed about 26,000 uh, iPads where we issue them directly for clinical care to the patient that will enable us to have the video connection. Now, the broadband is still a situation at times when you got to make sure that just because they've got the device, they've got the connectivity. But it's something we're doing to try and make sure we get the uh, um, the IT into the hands of the patient so that we can use video technology. Very cool. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to take legislative efforts, right? Just like uh, the importance of our roads, it's the importance of our networks. And, and I think that continuing to have robust, I mean, um, dating back to Governor Schwarzenegger, who did a phenomenal job of increasing access to uh, broadband throughout the state for uh, healthcare services. We had the when I was at UC Davis with Dr. Nesbitt, I had the pleasure of working um, with uh, Governor Schwarzenegger's administration, really expanding telehealth um, as a way of meeting the needs. So going back then, um, I think that needs to continue, and I and I hope the current administration with Governor Newsom really uh, continues to expand access to broadband uh, throughout the state of California because that's critical. David Ford, did you want to weigh in on anything? happening legislatively to, to move this forward? Well, um, one, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said. We, we've learned a lot about how telehealth is affected by the, the, the digital divide. Um, we've seen it both with um, uh, underserved patients. We've also seen a lot with the elderly um, that, you know, there are some very sophisticated, very, you know, fantastic telehealth platforms out there. Um, that unfortunately some of them require extra steps by the patient to download, log in, things that some patients may just have trouble with independent of the, um, in the independent of the broadband issues. And um, so, you know, one of the things that, that when we talked earlier about what the federal government did that was interesting during the pandemic 
is they also did what's called a notice of enforcement discretion, which allowed some other platforms to be used for telehealth, things like Skype that wouldn't usually be used for healthcare because they're not HIPAA compliant. The federal government actually said at the moment, you know, we're just going to kind of look the other way on that um, and allow that to go on. We're expecting that will not continue. I mean, if I had to lay my money, I would say a lot of the reimbursement stuff may stay in place. That notice of enforcement discretion, I think that's going to be a hard sell um, going forward. Um, but then the, the other thing that's been done during the pandemic is there's been a lot, you know, there's been an expanded use of phone-only telehealth. Um, there are some challenges to phone-only telehealth, which we've discussed here, and the ability to connect with patients over the phone. But for some patients, that may be the only way we can do it, um, is, to, is to allow the use of just the telephone for telehealth. So I, I want to use the end of our panel here to really look toward the future, right? So telehealth is having a moment during the pandemic. Um, you know, in the future, what is going to happen? Are people going to continue using telehealth? Or are they going to want to go back to the office? And from a healthcare system perspective, what adjustments need to be made for this to become, you know, the, the new normal or, or a more sustainable uh, widespread option? It's for anybody. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, this, this is not only a moment. This is this is. Uh, it's a quantum leap, and it's going to continue. I mean, this is, you know, I, I think Dr. Um, Sadaki had said the genie's out of the bottle, which is exactly right. And now that uh, both uh, healthcare providers and patients have experienced this, there's kind of no, there's no going back. Uh, there's, there are all the things we're talking about, the convenience factors and whatnot. There's going to be efficiency in a practice. Uh, and, um, you know, and I think back on my 30-year career as a primary care doc, I think about how many, you know, the, the majority of the visits I, I've had with, with patients could have been done over telehealth. It's, you know, unless an examination is required, and frankly, most of the time, it's not for chronic disease management, you know, checking their, their, their blood sugar levels and their blood pressure, and then talking about their medications, their symptoms, and then adjusting based on that. I could have done that without them taking two buses to the clinic and spending half the day, um, to, to make that visit. So um, it's here to stay. I, I really hope so as well, because I really think that um, the consumer wants it, the patient wants it, right? I mean, there's, there's so many things that we can do um, through telemedicine. Um, you know, we're able to treat patients with hepatitis C. So during this whole uh, pandemic time, when even when patients were sheltering in place, we were able to see patients, we were able to uh, start them on treatment for hepatitis C, complete their treatment course while they were there. We continue to treat our patients, you know, post-hospital follow-up and seeing them through telemedicine. So I really hope that we're going to see a true integration of telemedicine and telehealth technologies through the continuum of healthcare so we can have the best of both worlds. Um, you know, I don't think it's one or the other. It's really using them in concert. And uh, hey, hate to directly ask Dr. Gloria, but Dr. Gloria, you know, with Kaiser, how does what uh, how does Kaiser envision moving forward? Because obviously, you all have such a wonderful integrated healthcare system. So I was actually going to try and jump in next to comment on what you just said. So thanks. Uh, I completely agree with you. It is part of the continuum. I think it is here to stay. 
um, what I see in the future is there, there are still times that, it, that, that seeing a patient in person is necessary, um, even if that is to allay their fear because that's what they're comfortable with. It's about meeting the patient where they are and, and their needs. Um, I also see uh, bolstering it with additional um, online support uh, options um, through um, uh, secure messaging, um, growing even more, um, as well as moving into remote monitoring, uh, more hospital-at-home type stuff for a lot of the inpatient care. Um, I, I think that there's going to be growth in all of that going forward. And all you're going to see is more and more comfort um, from the patients with this and more and more comfort with the physicians providing it over time um, as the physicians get younger. And this is just the way it always has been. But I do think it's very important not to miss the connection that it is a continuum. It is part of everything that we can do and should be doing for patients. Thanks for sending it my way. Absolutely. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I, I, there has to be a catch here. Like if this was so easy and so great, why haven't we been doing it the whole time? <laughs> right? Like what? Well, well, we got a bunch of people. Let's let David, David Ford go first. He hasn't gone in a while. Um, yeah, well, a couple things. I mean, to, to your first question, I, I, I think um, I, was on a, I was on a webinar 24 hours ago with a group of small practice physicians, and they 201 said, yes, this is here to stay because my patients love it. Um, I think the reason it hasn't happened to date is because we, ha we almost had to be backed against a wall to see it in action. Um, there's, there have been a lot of concerns. I think they're legitimate, and there's a lot of education that needs to go on about um, privacy, about quality of care, um, that we need to sort out both for physicians and for patients. Um, you know, understanding that if you're on the phone with your doctor, you need to be in a room where you're by yourself or maybe with just a family member, but not, for example, walking through the grocery store, which is a story I've heard from a physician. Um, and then the, the other thing that, um, is that the medical world needs to catch up a little bit. Um, we've done a lot of learning over the last six months about what is appropriate for telehealth and what is not. Um, and I'll just use this example, which is derm, dermatology. Um, we've, I think we've all thought of that always as a, an obvious telehealth use case. You get a lesion on your skin, you snap a picture of it, send it to your doctor. What we're learning, with a lot of dermatologists roll out telehealth, you look at all of us and look how fuzzy we look right? A lot of these cameras are not good enough for what to really distinguish a, le a skin lesion from one thing to another. Um, and so something we all thought of as an obvious telehealth use case maybe isn't. And there's a lot of that thinking that's, that we're a lot of that learning that we're gathering and a lot of that thinking that needs to go on so that going forward, telemedicine absolutely, absolutely can be part of medical practice, but we can help physicians make clinical decisions. This patient needs to come in this one I can talk to on Zoom for Healthcare. Yeah, I think I, I'll just say that I would, I'm, I'm also the physician in chief of the Roseville Medical Center. And I can tell you right before in January, we were, we were launching a big push towards uh, video care and telehealth. And, you know, we were just trying to talk people into um, 
uh, doing tw- you know twenty percent, in, including phone care, and um, it was a lot of what um, you just said, David. There was a lot of uh, trepidation on is this valuable? It, it can't really work. But as soon as people really started to invest in it and try, they quickly realized how much uh, they could um, advance care and how much the patients um, uh, wanted it. Um, but you do have to make that determination, like when is it appropriate to actually bring somebody in because you can't, you, you do need to get an exam on top of it. So, You know, I'll say something that, that probably is not gonna be very popular. I, I keep going back to this, right? Um, I've been doing telemedicine since 2002, right? At UC Davis we published hundreds of articles on the safety on how to do telemedicine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Healthcare as a whole, if you look at the law of diffusion of innovation, is not a laggard, it's a late laggard. I mean, for goodness sakes, it took us 10 years to say, we can email test results to our patients, right? So obviously, what we need to do in healthcare is change a question. In, unfortunately, what I find, um, been, been a, trying to be in technology and healthcare for most of my career, is that most people say, no, you can't do that in healthcare. Rather than saying, okay, healthcare has some specific requirements. How can we do it safely in healthcare? And I think that is a mindset change that really the pandemic forced, right? If it wasn't for shelter in place, we wouldn't have been forced to take a look at it. So one of my hopes is moving forward is that healthcare will, will change their thought process as an industry and say, okay, how can we do this appropriately as opposed to just saying we can't do this? Well said. Perhaps, perhaps surprisingly to non-medical folks, inertia is rampant in medicine. Just as, as you said, we just we you know we have been very slow uh, to adopt uh, innovation, and so you know here is a big push to change it. Uh, in terms of um, you know why this wasn't happening earlier, I'm, I'm surprised, David, that you didn't talk about reimbursement uh, because uh, that's been a big barrier, right? Uh, because uh, uh, the reimbursement. Uh, traditionally has not supported the use of telehealth services in general, at least in, in offices, and the office visits rewarded. And so that, that's the incentive to have an office visit. So now uh, with, uh, with the uh, emergency regulations, uh, uh, we are required to reimburse at parity. Uh, so reimburse telehealth visits at the same rate as an in-office visit. And as uh, uh, David mentioned uh, previously, uh, in 2021, uh, AB, uh, Bill AB 744, at least for the commercial um, uh, part of the business, it, we are now required to reimburse at, uh, at equivalent rates in office visits. I think that's key. I think that's really important. I'm, I'm coming from the payer source, and, and it's, yeah, that is good for, good for our members, and uh, it should be paid for. And those emergency regulations are set to expire October 21st, correct? Well, yeah, that's a very interesting question. So, the, you know, the, the regulations have uh, we've hit we've hit uh, at least one other expiration period, and um, the state waited really long to extend it. We all feared, of course. I mean, things were really, you know, the epidemic was actually getting worse. Worse, and uh, as the deadline was approaching, it's like, come on, it's obvious it's going to be extended. Uh, I would be very surprised if this is not extended uh, throughout the rest of the year. Um, I welcome the opinions of others, but I, uh, that is a, a deadline, but I think it's going to be extended again. 
all we can do is hope, but until it's extended, it's October 21st right now. But then January 1st, January 1st, the state law would kick in for, for reimbursement parity. Correct, for, for commercial, for, for commercial plan. David Ford, is there anything you want to say about, about reimbursement or about any policy changes that we may see in 2021 and beyond? Well, I, yeah, and I, I appreciate Dr. May bringing it up. And I guess maybe I didn't bring it up because I, I thought it was, we kind of already uh, talked about it, but so, you know, it's, it's um, reimbursement parity is essential. And I, you know, as I've been doing a lot of telehealth education to physicians over the last uh, six, seven months, it's the number one question we get back is like, okay, this is great that this is here right now, but what will it be going forward? Because if physicians move to a telehealth platform and they're going to take the time to invest in, a, you know, a commercially available video conferencing, you know, full robust telehealth platform, they have to know there's a return on investment there. And, um, and so we, you know, the only way to do that is to promise them, yes, this will get paid. Um, and, you know, there's, there's things, there's, there's things that are tied to that, um, Medicare actually made changes to what are called the originating site rules to actually allow the patient to be at home to do telehealth because before the pandemic, patients had to either be in a hospital or they had to be in a clinic, a doctor's office, to me it defeats the point of telehealth. Um, and Medicare changed those rules, allowed the patients to be at home, so we need to remove that shackle off telehealth permanently. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, there's, just, there's a lot of that work that needs to be do. We need to bring the payers in who were not covered by Assembly Bill 744 um, and, you know, just keep all these rules in place. I expect that will be a conversation the legislature will have in 2021. Well, I think we have covered a lot. We are pretty much out of time. Thank you so much, everybody, for your time today and for painting this, this really broad, detailed picture. Um, of what's happening right now and, and what's to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.